Good afternoon, everyone. This is the Duck Thief. It's October 28th, and you're listening to the Straw Wolf Podcast. So this is show number four, and before I sort of get into what I want to talk about this show, I want to talk about last show because... Uh, it's a bit embarrassing. I'm not going to get rid of it because uh, it's already out there. But uh, I was really nervous and I was surprised because I'm not really talking to anybody. I'm sort of talking to myself. And I guess it's sort of like public speaking, but not really. And I found that I I said the word basically 16 times throughout the podcast. And this was bad because it was a filler word for when I there was dead air and I, I wanted to keep talking and I felt like I needed to and my throat got really tight and I needed I felt like I needed a glass of water or something as well I also talked about the fact that oh you know I I don't want this to be uh, you know a one-sided dialogue I want to hear feedback from people and at the same time I didn't provide an address where people can or a person if anybody's listening to this can give me feedback so how about I just tell you my Gmail address then? That, that'll work. It's strawwolf at gmail.com. So straw-wolf, all lowercase, at gmail.com. Okay, now let's go into the, the show. Uh, I have to say that I've been looking forward to doing the show for uh, the entire week. And I wrote down things on this little slip of paper that I wanted to talk about, which were going to be my show notes. And then, of course my luck what happens 10 minutes before I do the show I can't find them so uh, I only I have a couple things to talk about so I guess this is going to be a very short podcast uh, first thing I t- today I made my first casserole ever it was rotini fresh basil pine nuts and cheese casserole it's very good I would recommend it to anyone and I'm actually gonna post the recipe up It's really simple and easy to make all you need uh, is rotini which is a fancy word for corkscrew pasta. Uh, You need stewed tomatoes, parsley, basil, Havarti cheese, and pine nuts if you want them. And uh, basically, you know, 375 for 30 to 40 minutes, and you've got a really good substantial meal in your hands. I mean, I didn't have very much, and I feel full. And I think that's because of the pasta. That's what I'm going to assume. And uh, something I heard from my grandma today... uh, there's a story that she uh, heard on the radio, and there's a man who does a program, uh, and what he says is, and now you know the rest of the story, and he basically, well, trying not to say basically in there, I just said it. This is my goal. I'm going to try not to say it from this point in the podcast onwards. So hopefully I can, hopefully I can do that. Uh, the guy on the radio told this story about a, a schoolboy uh, in... Uh, early 20th century and he was going to an all-boys school, very fancy school in England, and he was there on scholarship because his family, uh, his father was uh, not rich, and it was winter, and all the boys were out on a a frozen pond or river, and they didn't have any skates on, so they were basically running, oh, see, I said it again, this is bad, okay, they were running and then sliding on their shoes, and uh, the boy, he was pushed down by one of the, the bigger school kids, and it chipped off half of one of his front teeth um, along the, the top. And he thought, what am I going to do? 
you know, I can't go talk to my dad about this because, you know, I don't want him to have to pay for it or anything because he doesn't have any money. So one of his friends said, you know what, just down the way, there's a dentist's college where they're, you know, learning how to deal with teeth. And, you know, if you go down there, they might be able to help you. So the boy went to the dentist's college and they pulled out the tooth. So there's this big gap there. And the boy thought, well, you know, I'm not going to be able to talk to my dad because he's going to see this big gap. And how am I going to explain what happened? So he just didn't talk for weeks and weeks. And eventually what happened was, I guess more teeth started growing in in the back, maybe some more molars, and they started pushing other teeth towards the front and filling in the gap. I don't know how long this took, it was maybe months later, and he finally was able to talk again because there was no longer any gap. And the, the boy's name was Archie Leach, who would later become Cary Grant. Uh, and uh, my uncle and my grandma and I we were talking about this today, and I said, well, that can't be true, because my uncle said, well, that's one of the reasons uh, people said Cary Grant has this sort of disarming smile, because it looks a little bit off, it looks kind of strange, and it's because he only has one front tooth along the top, and it's in the middle, um, it's in the middle, so it, it just looks a bit strange. And I said, well, is this true? I mean, is this a true story? So I went down to my computer, and I uh, googled it. I looked for an image, and surprisingly a lot of his photos a lot of his promotional photos show him he's smiling but his mouth is closed so I thought well that's kind of suspicious and fortunately I was able to find a picture of him smiling and he's got his mouth open and you can see the top row of his teeth and it looks like it's true I mean there is a tooth that's sort of right in line with his nose like it's it's in the middle so I'm gonna post this up onto the blog and uh, people, a person, whoever, anybody who's listening, you can uh, judge for yourself if you think this is a true story or not. I personally think it's true. And sort of in keeping with the the Cary Grant angle, uh, the movie of the week I'm going to spoil for you is uh, a Cary Grant movie. It's called Arsenic and Old Lace. It's from 1944. Okay, so this is about the, the sixth time that I've tried to do a summary of this and uh, I'm just gonna take something that I got off the net and hopefully this will explain everything. Uh, so Arsenic and Old Lace, it's sort of a black comedy and it was based on a stage play of the same name by a man named Joseph Kesselring. And uh, well for example Cary Grant he said this was his least favorite movie. Uh, he said he was overacting the entire time and I, I don't believe that. I think it, his acting works perfectly within the context of the movie. So Cary Grant plays a man named Mortimer Brewster and he is a drama critic who's written books um, against marriage and yet at the same time, uh, just as the movie's opening, uh, he's just about to marry uh, his fiancée Elaine, played by Priscilla Lane, and she's the girl next door, hardy har. And uh, then he goes home to uh, his loving aunts, uh, played by Josephine Hull and Gina Dare, their Aunt Abby and Aunt Martha, and they also had the same roles in the stage play. So Mortimer comes home, and while he's getting ready for his honeymoon, he finds uh, the body of uh, an, a man in the window seat, and he assumes that his crazy brother Teddy, who thinks he's Theodore Roosevelt, has killed this man. Now, uh, Teddy is played by John Alexander, and he also had the same role in the stage play. 
So Mortimer goes and talks to his aunts. He says, Abby, Martha, you know, what's this body? What did Teddy do? What's this body doing in the window seat? And Mortimer finds out that they're the ones who actually killed this guy. They poisoned him. And what they did was, you know, they have a sign for rent outside their uh, their house. And they, you know, it, they say they're doing the charitable thing. They get lonely old men who don't have any family to, you know, come in. And they, you know, say, let's have a drink. And they give him a glass of wine that's laced with, I think, arsenic and uh, strychnine and some other poison. And he drinks it. And uh, the man in the, the window seat, his name is Mr. Hoskins. And uh, they got started on this when the first of their gentleman friends, uh, he had a heart attack and died while he was there um, seeing them about the room that they had for rent. And they thought that he looked so happy and peaceful that it would be nice to make more me lonely men just as happy and peaceful. And you sort of get that uh, this family, they, they all seem to be a little uh, in eccentric, insane. So by the time Mortimer, he finds out about the man in the, the window seat, the body count of the, the ants, it's up to 12. And uh, the ants have gotten Teddy, who's a little, you know, whacked off his gourd. He's digging the Panama Canal in the basement. And so they thought, this is perfect. You know, it's a perfect place to bury the bodies, and Teddy's not really going to know what's going on. So they tell him every time they poison a man that, uh, oh, he's died of yellow fever. And uh, they, have, he ha they have to be buried because, you know, it's contagious disease. So they poison them with elderberry wine, and then they send Teddy down to the Panama to dig another lock for the canal, which is really a grave. And then they give the victim a decent Christian burial. And then uh, Mortimer, you know, he's still a little bit worried about Teddy and everything, so he spends the rest of the movie trying to get him committed to a sanitarium. Because he figures if the bodies are discovered, everybody's going to blame Teddy, because everybody in the neighborhood knows he's a little crazy. Um, because uh, the police have had been called over... Uh, several times because he blows his bugle in the middle of the night and he charges up the staircase um, you'll see if you watch the movie he does it several times there's a staircase going up to the second floor and he doesn't just walk up it he runs up it and he yells charge and then he runs into his room and he slams the door and the clock hands um, fall to 6.30 so uh, he thought that the staircase was San Juan Hill now I don't, I don't know a lot about um, Teddy Roosevelt history so I'm assuming that that's relevant. <laughs> and then, uh, so Mortimer's off trying to get uh, commitment papers from the doctor. His other brother, his his other crazy brother, Jonathan, comes, uh, comes back to the house, and he's just escaped from an asylum for the criminally insane. So, uh, and coming along with John Jonathan is a plastic surgeon named Dr. Einstein. And uh, Jonathan's character, he's played by uh, Raymond Massey, and uh, Dr. Einstein is played by Peter Lorre. So you can sort of see where this is going. Nobody recognizes Jonathan, though, because Dr. Einstein, as I said, he was a plastic surgeon. He's changed Jonathan's appearance. But he did it while he was uh, under the influence of, I think it was alcohol, and, uh, well, under the influence, and after he'd seen a particularly scary horror movie. And everybody claims Jonathan looks like Boris Karloff, and this makes him really angry, but it's kind of an inside joke, because, as I said, this was originally a play, and Boris Karloff was playing the role of Jonathan in the play. And, um, the, the, where I got this from, it said, the gag would have worked better if the character had been played by Karloff as it was in the stage play. And this movie, uh, it was released in 1944, but it was originally made in 1941, and what they were waiting for was, uh, for the play to be over and then they could uh, release the movie. But anyway, back to the, the summary of the, the plot that I'm ruining for you guys. Or you person, whoever you are. Uh, so 
Dr. Einstein, he plays this, the nervous doctor, and he's always, you know, I need a drink, I need a drink. And Raymond Massey is this really sinister, scary guy. And he's really tall, and he does remind me of Frankenstein, but anyway. Uh, so, Jonathan and Dr. Einstein also have a body, a man by the name of Mr. Spinalzo, in the body of the rumble seat of their car. And this is the man that Jonathan killed because he knew too much, and because he said Jonathan looked like Boris Karloff. So you can see that it's not really a, a safe thing to say that. So, meanwhile, the ants arrange to have Teddy remove the body from the window seat and take it down to the basement after they turn out the lights and, you know, you can't see anything. And then afterwards, Jonathan and Dr. Einstein bring their body in through the window. But Elaine shows up at the door, so Dr. Einstein has to hide the body in the now empty window seat. So, sort of to recap, Mr. Hoskins, the one, the guy the ants killed, he's down in the basement. And Mr. Spinazzo, the guy Jonathan killed, is now in the window seat. So, Elaine is in the house, and Jonathan, he s searches for the body, and he wonders what uh, Dr. Einstein did with it. And then he explains to Elaine that Dr. Einstein is an eminent surgeon and something of a magician. And then Mortimer comes back. And he discovers there's a different body in the window seat. And he's like, what's going on? And then he finds out the new body's one of Jonathan's victims. So Mortimer threatens to call the police unless Jonathan leaves with Dr. Einstein and the dead body. Then after Jonathan finds out that his aunts have killed 12 people, the same number he's killed, he refuses to leave. He says, I've got information on you, so you can't make me leave. Because if you call the cops, I'll just tell them what you did. And then he plans to murder Mortimer so that he has a higher body count than his aunt's. He doesn't like to be outdone. He goes off naming all the bodies, you know, how, where he killed them. and But his plan doesn't work because the police show up because uh, Teddy was blowing his bugle again. And then they uh, somehow recognize Jonathan. Uh, yeah, Officer O'Hara uh, comes over uh, to make sure everything's going okay. And he's convinced everything's alright and he... he corners Mortimer into a discussion of the play that he's writing and uh, as I said you know uh, Jonathan wants to kill Mortimer so he's tied him up and he's put a gag in his mouth and then when uh, the policeman comes over Jonathan says oh Mortimer's just practicing for this uh, play he wants to get into character you know he's uh, gonna be reviewing this play or he's working on something and the officer is not the smartest guy I guess he just goes along with it and then uh, this other guy, Lieutenant Rooney, comes in. He's the one who recognized Jonathan as an escapee from the prison for the criminally insane. And then Jonathan tells the officers about the bodies in the cellar, but they don't believe him. Because, you know, where where did he escape from? So, uh, the Einstein, Dr. Einstein, uh, or Jonathan is arrested. Dr. Einstein gets away. And Teddy is certified insane. And uh, he's taken off to the Happydale Sanitarium. And uh, trying to he Mortimer he's trying to protect society without sending his aunts to prison. Like he doesn't want them to go to prison, but he doesn't want them to kill any more guys. And so he agrees that when they insist, they want to go to Happy Deal with Teddy. They don't want him to be left alone. And uh, meanwhile, you know Elaine has come over, and Mortimer says, "I'm really sorry, but um, I can't do this because I, my oh, my whole family's crazy, and I don't want to put this on you." And then before the aunts leave, they say. Oh, uh, you know, after this is after he's uh, basically committed them to Happydale Sanitarium. They say, oh, you're not one of us. You're not a blood relative. Uh, you were dropped off by a... She was an illegitimate child of some woman who they, they brought in and sheltered from, I don't know, the elements or something. And so uh, Cary Grant says something like, I'm the son of a sea cook. And 
so he can marry Elaine without fear of passing on the Brewster insanity onto his children. And Mortimer leaves, but uh, before the women leave the house, uh, the aunts, they offer a drink to the head of the Happydale Sanitarium, Mr. Witherspoon, the guy who's going to take them away. And Mr. Witherspoon is a lonely older gentleman, and he gladly accepts a glass of the spiked elderberry wine. And I think that's where it ends, so you can assume what's going to happen next. And I also have a bit of trivia here. Um, Mortimer, there's a scene when Mortimer's outside, uh, uh, he's sitting on a tombstone, and you might be like, well, what's tombstone doing in uh, the middle of this movie? The aunt's house is right next to a cemetery, and this whole story is taking place on Halloween. So, uh, on one of the headstones behind him, uh, it says Archie Leach, and this is sort of an inside gag because Cary Grant's real name, uh, is Archie Leach. And, uh, as I said, the film was, uh, was made in 1941, and, uh, was waiting for the Broadway play to finish. And, uh, Karloff, I think what they were hoping was that Boris Karloff would be able to do, um, the movie version, but, uh, he was doing the Broadway version at the time, so he couldn't. And uh, Cary Grant, his salary for this film was $100,000, and he donated the entire chunk of money to the U.S. War Relief Fund, because this was made during the war. And uh, he was not the first person asked to play the role of Mortimer Brewster. Ronald Reagan was offered it first, and he turned it down. Jack Benny was offered the part, and he turned it down. Bob Hope was offered the part, and he wanted to do it, but Paramount Studios refused to lend him out to Warner Brothers. Uh, and the original Broadway play, it was really successful. It ran for a record 1,444 performances in the early 1940s. And as I said, uh, Cary Grant, he thought his acting in this film was horribly exaggerated, and he called it the least favorite of all his movies. Now, I haven't, I've seen about four of his movies, so I can't really judge. I think he made something like 72. But I liked his acting in it. It was great, his facial expressions and the way he looks at the camera. You can tell it's a play, because he looks at the camera, it's, it's like he's looking at the audience, and most of uh, the acting takes place within the Brewster home. So it's like a stage set. And uh, director uh, Frank Capra directed this, so same guy who did uh, It's a Wonderful Life and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, I believe. And he existed, he, ugh, existed. He enlisted in the U.S. Army Signal Corps in 1941 during filming. And uh, the Army basically said, you can, oh, I said it again, basically. Okay. He received an order that he could finish filming before he could report, before he had to report for active duty. So they let him finish editing the picture. And 20 years before they filmed it, so in 1921, uh, actress Jean Adair, um, Aunt Martha, she helped to nurse a very sick vaudeville performer named Archie Leach, Cary Grant, back to health. And uh, then she was asked to, uh, you know, 20 years later, 1941, she was asked to reprise her Broadway role in Arsenic and Old Lace. And so she and Cary Grant were already old friends by the time they made this movie. So, I think that's, that's all I have to say. Mm, yeah. And uh, I think I might have already said it before, but... Uh, if you want to leave me any comments, good or bad, I encourage both. Uh, you can reach me at strawwolf at gmail.com. I think it's dot com. Anyway, I'll talk to you guys next week. Mm -hmm.